What a blessing it is to have a weekly opportunity to gather together as believers. I know I say that from time to time, but I was thinking this morning of just the wisdom of God for this to be a weekly gathering. What if it were a monthly gathering or a quarterly gathering or a yearly gathering? Think of how much happens in a week and how much we need to be together as God's people to be under his word, singing together, serving each other, fellowshipping with one another. What a blessing to have our Sunday mornings together. If you would, turn in your Bibles again to the wonderful letter to the Hebrews. This week to chapter 2. You know, there are few things more unsettling for a nation than the threat of war. When tensions begin to rise between one nation and another, people begin to talk. Neighbors begin to discuss the likelihood of war. Every news outlet begins to analyze the potential for war, and each individual begins to develop their own opinions about what might happen. We've seen this in our own nation on several occasions. Obviously, after the events of 9-11, everyone was talking about war. As the situation in Vietnam intensified, people were suspicious that war was coming. And of course, in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor, all of America was wondering when the U.S. would join World War II. And in that kind of an environment, there will always be a myriad of voices giving their opinion. As each individual citizen tries to come to their own thoughts on the issue, they will prioritize certain voices over others. For example, the opinion of your conspiracy theory neighbor who still believes that Elvis is alive is quickly pushed aside. But the opinion of your best friend or family member warrants a little more consideration. Major news outlets, while they are admittedly flawed, will gain even more attention, and public statements by military leaders will be taken even more seriously. But in a situation in which our entire nation is on pins and needles wondering if war is coming, there is one voice that stands above them all. There's one person in our country who, in conjunction with Congress, can officially declare our nation to be at war. And it is the President of the United States. It doesn't matter if the President is from your political party or if he's the one that you voted for. When the threat of real war is upon us and it's announced that the President is going to speak to the nation, everyone tunes in. Because as it turns out, when something truly matters, we prioritize how much attention we give to the opinions of others based upon their level of authority on that matter. The more authority a person has over a specific topic being considered, the more we're inclined to listen to them. And it's this truth that the author of Hebrews will begin to drive home in our text this morning and over the next few weeks. After all, why is it that the author of Hebrews has chosen to dedicate so much time to the argumentation of Christ being greater than the angels? What's that about? It's because he wants us to understand the weightiness and the authority of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most exalted being in the universe, and therefore his words carry more weight and deserve closer observation from us than any other words that have ever been spoken in human history. And so with that in mind, we turn our attention back to the wonderful book of Hebrews, beginning now in chapter 2. 
And remember, the overarching theme of the book as a whole is the superiority of Christ. He jumped right into that in the first four verses, proving that Jesus is God's final word this is as the Son of God. He's superior to even the Old Testament prophets. Then in verse 5, he began this argument that we are still in the middle of, that Jesus is superior to the holy angels. And this argument began in verse 5 and runs all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2. I'll just put on the screen quickly for you the, the six proofs that we've seen over the last few weeks of the fact that Jesus is in fact superior to the angels. He's the son of God. He's deserving of worship. He's, the angels are mere servants of God. Jesus is the righteous king, the eternal creator, and the universal ruler. All six of those truths have been building momentum towards one great implication. And he's proven to us already this larger theme that we've been unpacking. The theme of the, the section as a whole is Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. He's already successfully proven that to us. And so turning the corner into chapter 2 and verse 1, he now pauses his argumentation and focuses our attention on one great implication. Why does it matter? What has all this argumentation been leading to? That's what he's going to tell us this morning. But understand that this implication comes with a warning. In fact, there are five so-called warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And we'll see this becomes a familiar pattern. He will spend time giving clear arguments, and that argument then will lead to an implication in the form of a warning. We have the first of those five warnings beginning here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Let's read our text together. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. These verses really highlight one central idea, which is simply the fact that we must give our utmost attention to the words of the Son. We must give our utmost attention to the words of the Son. If you've been wondering what all of this argumentation and all these Old Testament passages have been leading towards, here is the great implication that we'll be considering this morning. The gospel demands greater attention. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands greater attention. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1, in the opening phrase. He says, For this reason, for this reason, with this simple little introductory phrase, the author points back, obviously, to all of the arguments he's just made in chapter 1. And all the intensity that's been building up with proof after proof that Jesus is greater than the angels has gotten us ready for this grand moment. 
Because Jesus is the Son of God, deserving of worship, served by angels, the righteous King, the eternal Creator, and universal Ruler, we must respond. But how? How must we respond to these wonderful truths? He says, for this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Notice how the author includes himself in this statement with the word we. We must pay closer attention. We, meaning all of us who have heard this revelation brought by the Son. And this would include those, of course, that heard it from his mouth as Jesus spoke these words, but also the apostles as they spoke the words and wrote them down for us. So we then, here this morning, are included in this word we because we have the revelation of Christ on the pages of Scripture. But notice specifically, he says, what we, what we must do in response to the superiority of Christ. We must pay much closer attention. The obvious question is, closer than, than who and closer attention to what? The word closer brings up some questions. Now, the what question is going to be answered here in just a moment in the text. But to understand the who, who is it that we're to pay greater attention then, we must look at the greater context. We have to be reminded of how this letter began, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Remember, he introduced two groups of people. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, that's group 1, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us, that's Group two, in his son. So here we have these two groups of people. The we refers to verse two, us, that we have received the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The other group that preceded us is the fathers. That is, the Jewish ancestors or believers who heard the Old Testament prophets, who had the old covenant before the coming of Christ. So don't miss how important this statement really is. Astonishingly, the, the author says that, that we who have this final revelation from Christ must pay closer attention to what we have heard than even the believers of previous generations who only had the Old Testament and Old Covenant. It's a very significant statement. Now, let me be really clear about what this does not mean. The author of Hebrews is not insinuating that the New Testament is more inspired or more important than the Old Testament. Both Testaments, every word of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is equally inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore profitable and useful for us today. But God has chosen, as we've said, to reveal himself progressively over time. Progressively over time. You know, when I was growing up, one of the favorite pastimes of my family was to put together jigsaw puzzles, particularly around the holidays. And what we would do is dump out all the pieces on the kitchen table, and for that holiday week, each family member would just stop here and there and put together some of those pieces. The first couple of days, as we found pieces that fit together, it was really impossible to tell what the, the final result was going to be. We're just finding one match after another as quickly as we can. But once we got a little section put together, we would begin to place it on the table where we thought it might end up. 
And as the week moved on, certain images came into clear view from this larger image. And we started to see, oh, maybe this is going to be a, a large house, for example. But we couldn't tell how many stories it was going to have or how many windows or what decorations would be in front of the house. We just could tell that it was going to be a large house. But little by little, piece by piece, throughout the week, that image would come clearer and clearer into view. And then, of course, someone had the privilege of finally placing that last final piece. And we could see the whole thing there together. Now, every piece of that puzzle had immense value. And it made an integral contribution to the picture as a whole. But with each passing stage of completion, the puzzle made more and more sense and provided more and more information about the picture as a whole. In the same way, God has chosen according to his sovereign will to reveal himself and his plan of salvation to us progressively over time. The first stage of that revelation came to us in written form at least through the prophet Moses on Mount Sinai. That revelation, as we've said, came through the mediation of angels. It was God's divine word. It was inspired down to the very syllable and letter, and it had and has immense value for every believer. Those who received it were held accountable for how much attention they gave to those words and how much they obeyed those words. But In the fullness of time, according to God's plan, he chose to give us his final and full revelation through the mediation not of angels, but of his own divine son in human flesh. And as we've seen, the son is so far exalted above the angels that the two are not even in the same category. They're not really even worthy of comparison. That means then that we, as those who have this final revelation of God, given through the Son, bear an even greater responsibility to pay close attention to those words. Just as the, uh, uh, the authoritative position that belongs to the President of the United States gives more weight to his declaration of war, so the exalted position of the Son of God demands our utmost attention when he speaks the revelation of God. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that nothing else on earth demands your attention more urgently than the revelation that's been given through the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. And that answers the the question of of who, but it also brings us to the answer of, of what. Pay closer attention to what. He says, to what we have heard. To what we have heard. This is an obvious reference back to chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. We're to listen to these words that have been received, the final revelation of God through the Son. The contemporaries of Christ had it in verbal form and then wrote it down so that we now have it in written form. But in whatever form we have it, it demands our utmost attention. And just think about it. What information could be more valuable than the words spoken by the Son of God himself? There's no other person of greater authority or importance than the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there are no words which carry more weight or demand more attention or obedience than his. It does bring up the question, though, what does it mean to pay close attention to the revelation that we have from the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? 
What are the implications of that idea? Well, to answer that, we really have to think of it from two different perspectives. First of all, we have to answer the question from the perspective of the unbeliever. What does it mean for the unbeliever when Hebrews uh, here tells us that we're to pay much closer attention to what we have heard? You see, the unbeliever must pay attention in the sense that, that he must not fool himself into thinking that Jesus and his gospel have no real implications for him. You know, many unbelievers view Christianity as this sort of crutch for weak people. And they say, you know, that's great for you if you need that, but I'm doing just fine on my own. And they make the mistake of thinking that Jesus and his revelation only have implications for those who believe. But that logic is terribly flawed. Think of it this way. If the local news was reporting that a Category 5 hurricane is headed towards your town, The significance of that report is not based on whether or not you believe it. It's based on whether or not it's true. If it's true, it has great significance for your life regardless of whether or not you believe the report or not. In the same way, Jesus did not come speaking these words only to believers. The implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ extend to every person in humanity that's ever existed. That's because he's not only the Jewish Messiah, nor is he merely the Savior of those who believe. But he is also the eternal creator and judge to whom every man, woman, boy, and girl is accountable. So the revelation of Jesus Christ will impact your life and eternity, whether or not you choose to believe it or not. And because of that, you must heed the words of Christ. Pay closer attention. Pay attention to the words of Christ. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. If you're an unbeliever this morning, understand that the author of Hebrews is trying to grab you by the shirt and scream with all the love in his heart, listen, pay attention to the words of Christ. The Son of God came down out of heaven and took on flesh as the full revelation of God to us so we could see the Father in the Son. And this is what's so amazing about the Lord Jesus Christ is he came knowing your sin to the fullest. Every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful action, he knew it all. Before you even lived, he knew it all. And yet when he came in his first coming, he did not come pouring out his wrath upon your sin, but instead calling to you to come and be reconciled to God through him. Listen to the words. You want to know what are some of the words that you should pay close attention to? Listen to what Jesus said in these few passages. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew eleven twenty five to 30. At this time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he says in verse 28, Come to me. Listen to that call. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then in John 12, beginning in verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at that last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, and when you hear the gospel, all you hear is judgment, you're not paying close enough attention to the words that have been spoken. Yes, the gospel begins with the honest assessment of yourself as a sinner before God. Not just one who has committed sins, but one who is a sinner through and through. That is absolutely true and essential to understanding the gospel message. It begins with the fact that we have all offended God and we're, we're worthy of his wrath poured out against us. But if you stop listening to the words of Christ there, you miss the beauty of the gospel. Because the son continues to say, come to me. I offer to you eternal salvation. He says, if you will repent of your sins and believe in me, I will take the wrath of God. I will take it upon myself. The wrath that was meant for you, that you deserve, I will take it and I will give to you my righteousness that you might be with me and the Father forever if you would just repent and believe in the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. So, friend, if you're an unbeliever this morning, then wake up. Listen to the words of Hebrews. Pay closer attention to these words because they will save your soul if you will repent and believe in the Son. So, obviously, the unbeliever must heed the words and look at them closely. But what about us as believers? In fact, in the text, the author includes himself. Remember, he says, we must pay closer attention. He's obviously a believer. He's speaking primarily to believers. So obviously there's also a perspective in which we must look at this from the lens of a believer. If you're a Christian this morning, understand that we are accountable as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to pay close attention to what we've heard. We don't know exactly what the contextual situation was behind the book of Hebrews, but there are so many warnings in this book that it's clear that the author had some level of discomfort, of concern, that the people were in danger of forgetting just how important Christ and the gospel were and in some way uh, turning from the truth or drifting from Christ. It may have been that persecution was beginning in the church and it was putting pressure on these believers and some of them were, were beginning to waffle in their faith. But whatever the reason, the author clearly intends for this to be a wake-up call for these Christians. It's like a slap in the face. Pay closer attention. Perhaps it's a wake-up call that, that we need this morning to wake up and pay closer attention to what we've heard. As Christians, we are the most privileged people on the planet to have the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And yet the truth is, as we live life in a fallen world, doing daily battle with our sinful flesh... 
If we're not careful, we can begin to neglect the gospel and its implications for our lives. Though we once burned with fervor for the scriptures and the gospel, it may be that our flame has begun to wane in intensity. If we're genuine believers, the flame can never fully go out, but it may be that it's not burning with the full intensity that it once did. How does that happen? How do we go from giving Christ and his revelation our utmost attention to gradually turning our attention to lesser things? As I've thought about that, I came up with a short list. It's certainly not exhaustive, but here are some of the danger signs, some of the things that if we're not careful and we fall into these traps, we will not be paying close enough attention to what we have heard. Number one, when we stop clinging to the truth daily. I don't mean just reading your Bible. You should do that. I mean clinging to the truth throughout the day, meditating on truth and using truth in your mind to focus on what God has said and obeying what you understand from the Scriptures. Secondly, we get distracted by the joys and sorrows of life. Each day has joys. Many days, if not most, have some kind of sorrow. These things can drown out and take our attention from the truth. Number three, we stop praying. Prayerlessness is a a cancer to your spiritual life. Fourthly, we neglect the local church. You want to stop paying close attention to the things of God? Just neglect the local assembly of believers. Don't come to church. Don't fellowship with other believers. And you won't pay close attention. And you'll find yourself drifting. Fifthly, we give in to pride, selfishness, and laziness. Sixth, we become complacent in the pursuit of sanctification. We just stop putting forth the effort we once did towards growth and holiness. Seven, similarly, we grow weary in doing good. Perhaps you were serving somebody in the church and they offended you or sinned against you. And you say, you know what, I'm, I'm done. That's it for me. Number eight, we're blinded by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, sin is irrational. You don't think straight when you're giving in to sin. You, you don't view life correctly. It's deceitful. Number nine, we start to listen to ourselves rather than preach to ourselves. Instead of taking our emotions and thoughts captive to the word of God, we just let them sort of pound us throughout the day and listen to the voice of our flesh. And then finally, when we invite the world's influence through books or media. Listen, I'm not saying a Christian can't watch a movie or read a non-Christian book. But I am saying that we must use extreme discernment when we take the world's thoughts and philosophies and entertainments into our homes. I've seen far too many Christians get distracted or deceived or confused because they've begun to read books by godless men. They deceive themselves into believing that they're strong enough in their faith and they're, they're, they're deep enough in their discernment that they can read these worldly books and, and take what's good, so to speak, and toss out what's bad. But over time, what happens instead is they drift. They become more influenced by these worldly influences than by the word. You know, I've watched enough National Geographic documentaries that I'm pretty confident that if I had to, I could handle a poisonous snake without being bitten. But you know, I really don't want to find out. I don't want to test that theory. And yet that's what we do. We take in the world's philosophies as if it won't affect me. I can handle it. Why do we allow ourselves to become consumed with the shiny objects of the world? The author of Hebrews says that the obvious implication of the exaltation of Christ is the fact that we as God's people must pay closer attention 
to the revelation that we received. Even closer attention than the Old Testament saints did to the revelation they received. Remember Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Listen to that. Set your mind on the things above. Intentionally choose. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The Christian mind is to be intentionally and meticulously consumed with Christ and the truth of Scripture. Let me say that again. The Christian mind is to be intentionally and meticulously consumed with Christ and the truth of Scripture. We have the gift of the word of Christ and the gospel. And we're in desperate daily need of dwelling on these things. But it does bring up the question of why. Why is it so important that we fill our minds with the truth so intentionally? That's exactly what the author tells us next. If you look back at the text, Hebrews 2, 1, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that, that clues us in, he's about to give the reason. Why must we pay such close attention? So that we do not drift away from it. So that we don't drift away from it. This phrase is built off of a very unique Greek word. That this word translated drift away, it's actually a nautical term. It refers to a boat that's either veering off course or one that's lost its moorings and therefore is drifting from its anchor. You know, when we think of something drifting away, it paints a picture of a very slow, almost imperceptible movement off course or away from the anchor. And if the captain of the ship doesn't notice that he's veering and drifting, it can have drastic consequences for all on board. In the same way, the Christian life is not to be pictured as a motionless lake with no wind in which the boat could just simply stay in one place in the middle of the lake without much effort. Just an easy, placid existence. In fact, the Christian life is a life surrounded by swirling, fast-moving currents. And all of these currents pull away from the anchor point of Christ. And and if it were not for the anchor, you and I would be swept away into these currents. Sometimes those currents are even accompanied by treacherous storms. The Lord at times ordains season of trial in our life in which the boat that is our Christian life is slammed against by raging waves and torrential rain and ripping gusts of wind. And if it weren't for the anchor of Christ and his word, we would be swept out to sea. The psalmist understood this, and that's why he wrote in this famous psalm, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And here's the result of that reality. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What the author of Hebrews wants us to understand is that the Christian life is not a passive existence. And in order to understand this, we have to grasp the distinction between justification and sanctification. We've gone over this before, but you can't ever remind yourself too much of these truths. Justification refers to our salvation as Christians. It's a legal term, actually, that means to declare righteous. 
Our salvation is completely a work of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. God must save you. And he does so ultimately by the means of justification, which means that in grace, he declares you to be righteous, not because of your own actual righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus applied to you, imputed to you. Which means that this is God regenerating us, opening our eyes to the truth so that we can see our sin and we can see Christ and actually giving us the gift of faith and repentance so we can respond. And then in response to that faith that he himself has given, he justifies us. It's a one-time action, a one-time declaration in the courtroom of God. This one is righteousness by the righteousness of Christ. There is no double jeopardy. We will not be brought back into the courtroom. It is done. That's why we call it a monergistic work. That means one person working. It's monergistic. God alone does the work of justification. But sanctification is the process that begins at justification and continues for the entirety of our Christian lives until the Lord brings us home. In justification, we're declared righteous based on Christ's righteousness. But in sanctification, we are made actually righteous over time so that we truly begin to reflect the character of Christ in actuality. Sanctification is the process then by which God makes us holy inch by spiritual inch. But here's the kicker. Though sanctification is also a work of God, It does require and demand our effort. You cannot sanctify yourself. God must do it. But he commands that you give your maximum effort towards growing in holiness. In that sense, sanctification is what we call synergistic, working with. God is the one who gives the strength, the motivation, and even causes any fruit to come. Any ounce of sanctification goes to the glory of God, but we are to work with God in the sense of giving our maximum effort. Now, you might be thinking, as fascinating as that is, what in the world does that have to do with our passage here in Hebrews? Well, I'm glad you asked because it has everything to do with our passage in Hebrews. In fact, it has everything to do with much of what we'll study in the book of Hebrews. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, then you have been justified and therefore you are anchored in Christ. That anchor is immovable. It never fails. No matter how high the waves become or how strong the current, the wind, or the rain, the anchor of Christ will hold. That's justification, and it produces preservation. That is that God will keep us until the end. He will bring us safely home. But with that said, if we stop giving our maximum effort towards sanctification, we will begin to slowly drift inch by inch away from the anchor. We're not unhitched from the anchor. But we may drift away from it over time. And when this happens, there are some warning signs. When you're drifting from the anchor, suddenly the battle with sin seems to get more difficult. And you find that you're losing more often than you were before. Our faith seems to be weaker. Our trials seem to be heavier and more demanding. And hope seems to be more distant. What's happened When that happens in the life of a Christian, what's happened? Has the anchor begun to slide across the bottom of the sea? Never. Never. The anchor has not moved, but the Christian has stopped clinging to the rope connected to the anchor as tightly as they should. 
And so they are, are slowly, perhaps even imperceptibly so, moving slightly away from that anchor and giving into sin and seeing sin more and more dominate their life. Now, as I said, a true Christian can never lose their salvation. And so in keeping with the illustration, the rope can never be cut. We're always attached to the anchor. But if we stop giving our maximum effort, we can drift for a time as Christians. The temptations and trials of life come along and they beat against that Christian and causes them to begin to slowly drift if they're not tightly holding on to that rope. The complacent or undisciplined Christian is caught off guard by trial and by temptation and they they realize that their grip's not as tight on the rope as it should have been and by the time they, they realize it and grab onto the rope, they've already let out some rope and have drifted some distance from the anchor. So the question then becomes, based on this illustration from this Greek word of drifting, how do we hold on to the rope that's connected to the anchor? How do we keep from drifting? Well, thankfully, the author gave us the answer before he mentioned the problem. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The scriptures unanimously teach us that the primary means that God uses to sanctify his people is the word of God. And that's the idea here. To pay close attention to the things that we have heard means that we commit ourselves to daily studying of God's word and meditation upon the word. All throughout the day, the temptations and trials of all kinds will come at us. Regardless of of what kind of temptation or trial we're experiencing, the, the response is always the same. Turn your mind to the truth. Filter that temptation and that trial through what Christ has said in his word. Remember that the word of God is not just cold, stale words on a page. It is living and active, and the Spirit is still speaking through the Word of God to convict us of sin, to strengthen our faith, and to mature us in the faith. So how does that work? Let me give you some examples. Let's just say you're encountering a trial in life. Let's say it's, it's real persecution. Let's say God allows real persecution to come into your life or to all of our lives. What do we do? We run to the scriptures. We recall truths like Matthew 10, 28, where it says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What about worry and anxiety? You're just overcome by the trials of life. We turn our mind immediately in those moments to places like Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. But they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not much worth much more than they? And he goes on down to verse 33 and says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What about if you lack assurance that your sins are forgiven? What about if that that old ugly sin that you thought was dead and gone, you've been working on it, and yet here it is again, you find yourself in repentance again over the same old sin. It tripped you up again. How can I be forgiven? How can I be a Christian? Has God really extended grace to me? 
We turn our mind to the truth. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about when temptation is surrounding us on every side and we wonder, how can I stand it? How can I make it through this temptation to the other side without failing? We turn our minds to the truth. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptations overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. Don't you see... The scriptures truly give us everything we need for life and godliness. Truly. And so one of the primary ways that we give our maximum effort towards sanctification is by paying close attention to what we've heard in the scriptures. Turn your mind to the gospel. Turn your mind to the gospel's implications for your life. And turn your mind to every line of scripture for help. When you're tempted to think or act in a way that's inconsistent with the teachings of Christ, picture that temptation as a dangerous current seeking to pull you away from the anchor. And you cling to the anchor rope with all your might by forcing your mind to think on the truth and meditate on the truth and apply the truth and then walk in the truth. That's how we hold the rope. And when the battle seems to be more than you can take, remind yourself that as you hold on to that anchor rope, the anchor holds on to you. Remember Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Lord Jesus Christ holds every one of his children in his hand. And therefore, if we are his, then we can rest assured that he will never let go. And even though we are to give our maximum effort towards sanctification and give it all we've got, the only reason we have any confidence that that will bear fruit at all is because God is at work in us as his people and he will see us through to the end. He will never fail. But before we move on, we do have to deal with a sad question. This text and other texts in Hebrews will bring up this question many times. What about those who at one time professed to be believers but have drifted away from the anchor of Christ altogether? They've not just drifted for a time or slightly so, but we see them sailing out to the open ocean of the world. Well, this text applies not only to believers who can drift away from the anchor to a certain degree while never fully falling away, but it also describes those who are truly apostate. Since the church began, there have been those who attach themselves to the church and appear for a time to be genuine in their faith, but who ultimately reject Christ and the gospel. Even in the ministry of our Lord, there, of course, was Judas, who participated right along with the rest of the disciples, received all the same teaching, was even sent out to do ministry work, and in the end denied our Lord. Paul, of course, was betrayed many times by men like Demas, whom he invested in and loved and who left him and deserted him. 
And many since that time, throughout church history, have seemed to be genuine in their faith only to walk away. As I said, the author of Hebrews will remind us and warn us often of this reality that we call apostasy. But how does that happen? How do we even explain that? What's happened when someone that seems to be true and genuine in their faith, I mean, really rejects the faith and walks away from Christ? We have to understand they have not lost their salvation, but have evidenced what's been there all the while, that they were never truly in Christ. And we see this clearly in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Children, it's the last hour. Just as you heard, as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In keeping with the illustration here that we've been working with in our text, the apostate rows his boat into the group of believers, but he never truly connects his boat to the anchor. For a time, he paddles around and paddles along and seems to be going in the same direction and doing all the things that true believers are doing, but he remains unconnected to the anchor. He never puts his trust in that anchor. And when the storms and temptation and trials of life come, he sets sail and follows the winds and currents of the world. And his boat is not stopped and held by the anchor because he never really trusted in the anchor in the first place. Let me just say, friend, if you're here this morning and you've been coming to church and you're going through the motions, maybe you're reading your Bible, you're doing the Christian thing, but you know in your heart of hearts you're truly weighing out, am I really going to repent of my sin and put my faith in Christ or am I going to go my own way? This is a warning, friend. Pay close attention. Don't play the game because it's not a game. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. But if you're a Christian this morning, I encourage you to consider your own life in relationship to this text. First of all, how much attention do you give to the Word of God? How much attention do you give to the Word of God in your daily life? Have you become distracted? by the mundane things of life? Have you been captivated by the false promises of sin? Have you grown lazy or undisciplined in the practice of reading and studying and meditating upon the truth of Scripture? Be reminded today that the Scriptures come to us by God Himself, not only through the mediation of angels, but by His very Son incarnate. There's nothing more valuable for you to dwell on than Christ and the gospel, and his word. Commit yourself anew to clinging to the truth, to paying close attention, because we can't afford to neglect this great treasure that's been given to us. Secondly, ask yourself honestly, have you drifted from the anchor in any degree? Is there some sin in, in your life that you're justifying are you beaten down by the trials and difficulties of life? Have you allowed your trial or temptation to cause you to take your eyes off of Christ and his word and put them too much on yourself? Grab a hold of the rope of the word of God and squeeze it with all your might. Let go of whatever sin has captivated your attention, Christian, and remind yourself that Jesus is better 
It's better than anything else the world can offer. Take out the sword of God's word and cut down whatever sin or temptation you're facing. And if you're beaten down by some trial that seems insurmountable, run to the rock of Christ. Stop listening to your emotions and the ramblings of your flesh and remind yourself of what is true. Center yourself back on the words of Christ. God is our refuge and strength, so we will not fear. He will hold us fast. See, Christian, we cannot afford to stop clinging to the Scripture even for a moment. Cling to the Word of God and watch with amazement as He continues to sanctify you inch by inch, day by day, because He is faithful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Your word is so good, so clear, and you are so kind. You don't just command us to do things and then leave us in our own strength to try to figure things out, but you are with us in the battle, in every storm, in every trial. You've equipped us with your word and the spirit. You've given to us everything for life and godliness. We have no needs in these departments. And so, God, thank you for reminding us this morning that as we struggle, and we do struggle, but as we struggle, we have a firm anchor in Christ, and we have the rope connected to that anchor, the Word of God, and may we hold it tightly, hold it dearly, and may you see us through every storm, every temptation, bring us safely home to yourself, but in the meantime, God, make us more like Christ. Help us to be more faithful today than we were before, more faithful tomorrow than today and the next day after that until you bring us home for your own glory. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.